Welcome to Executive Tools, How to Structure an Organization, Part 2. This cast answers these questions. How do I build an org chart? What is the primary goal in structuring an organization? Why are org charts also different? Well, if you want to answer these questions and more, keep listening. Here we go. Last time we talked about rule number one. We've got a few to get through. This is going to run. I don't think we're going to finish it in part two. <laughs> no. I think I we'll have more. I don't think we are. Okay, so let's get right to it. So rule one, build your organization to serve its customers. We talked about that last time. Yeah. Uh, and now we're going to talk about rule number two, which is make it as small as possible. And then in typical horseman fashion, make it smaller than that. Yeah. And the problem here is people don't know this rule because they start with the wrong first rule. The, the wrong first rule that most people use is about the people internally. And then they start building an org without respect to its outside constituencies, its results, and its metrics, and so on. And I can assure you, there's no executive above you who wants you to be even one person over what their head thinks it will require. Now, their head may, be, may have a number that's too low, but they don't want you to be over that number because it's so expensive. And look, the problem with orgs, and people don't understand this, and folks, we're not trying to make you feel bad about this. Nobody's taught you this. In fact, I've read several organizational theory textbooks, and none of this stuff is in there, which is just bizarre to me. But basically, all organizational structural decisions come with strengths and weaknesses. If you structure yourself one way in order to get a particular outcome, that's great, but you're going to have unanticipated negatives associated with that. The two simplest ways to think about organizations are tall and narrow, smaller spans of control, and short and wider, okay? Sort of Meaning short and lots of layers, right, as a result of that? Well, if you're tall and narrow, yeah, you have lots of layers. And if you're short and wider, you have less layers. And of course, short and wider is what everyone proclaims to want. And you, you look at all the big companies in the world, you see tall and narrow, except at the very bottom. For some reason, you know, managers and executives seem to think I only need three or four or five people reporting to me because they're not any good at managing. And then at the lowest levels, they have somebody with 25 people working for them. They're saying, well, why can't we do one-on-ones? Well, this isn't structural tools, but you have a structural problem. Yeah. So... If you're tall and narrow and you have small, small spans of control from your managers and you have many layers, you tend to be very good at executing on a clear mission and with maximum focus. And that's what a large, a lot of larger companies do. And they have to produce revenues and profits every year because they're probably a public company. And some people have been challenging me recently, Mike, I haven't mentioned this to you by email about, well, you, you know, it's a big difference between public and private companies. You know, public companies, they've got to do all this stuff and satisfy the markets. And I said, well, yeah. And if you're truly a wholly owned private company, a family owned company, as an example, then yeah, you don't have that kind of stuff. And there's certainly a discussion right now in the world that public companies are more in their twilight than they are in their sunrise right now. Public companies have made a huge difference in the world, enormously so. But now the common way that somebody would be private is to be owned by private equity or to have venture capitalists involved. And I'll tell you, I don't know a single manager or executive at a private equity firm who thinks it would be harder to go to a publicly managed firm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's mind-boggling how focused they can be. 
Yeah, of course. Of course, the investors <laughs> yeah. make them focus. Yeah, and exactly. So, and so the whole tall, tall and narrow thing, I think, I think you're right. You, you get very good at executing orgs, you know, that have a very clear mission, right? But on the other hand, typically what I've seen, they're, they're not very flexible. Exactly. Yeah, what happens is they're, they're kind of like an arrow. They're good at going in one direction. Somebody says, okay, this is what we're going to do. And everybody does it. And bosses threaten people if they get off the reservation and go here or there, hither and yon, and so on. And change is much harder at vertical organizations. And people just don't really understand that, that if you're at a big company, you're going to have problems with change. And it's not like everyone else is good at change and you're not. They're all bad at change. No offense, relatively speaking. Heck, go through all the Harvard Business Reviews about how to change your large organization. And the great example is the analogy that a large organization, a public Fortune 1000 company, is a bit like a, an oil tanker at sea. Their, their turning radius is like seven miles, and it takes a while. Typically, corporate change efforts, the, the assumption is they take three to five to even seven years yeah it's almost if making decisions has trade-offs right that's okay. no no mike don't, don't. <laughs> no. We're, we're gonna have to do a whole series on decision theory as well which is just gonna be when when we tell people as we have before that uh it's completely acceptable for a decision a decision that is considered the right decision to have bad outcomes people just can't even comprehend that but that's that that's what decision theory teaches us Okay, so what about, that's the kind of tall and narrow. How about right. the flatter and wider org? Yeah, so fewer levels. Typically, therefore, higher span of control numbers. And so when we say span of control, folks, if you don't know what that means, that means a manager having 10 people reporting to her rather than five people reporting to her. If you're wider and flatter, you tend to be more flexible. On the other hand, it's harder for you to execute to one primary objective because flexibility means people are willing to change and people who are willing to change and are keen to change or are attuned to change will then say, well, I don't want to only do one thing for the next two years to help us make our quarterly revenue targets. There is more flexibility, certainly, but there's also a dispersion of energy because people think being flexible means being creative and innovative. And if you're going to be creative and innovative, you're going to have mistakes, you're going to have failures, and those failures cost you productivity hours. And now people will say, well, no, that's fine. You have to do that. And it's great. Yeah. Okay, fine. There's a balance between being able to execute in a single direction and being flexible. And it's really hard. And actually all the structural effort you make in the world will not change it if you have the wrong kind of people for your organization. And look, we all know it. The flexibility is what draws people to that flatter org structure. And some people even go further and say, oh, we need a truly fat stru flat structure with like one senior executive and then everybody else has the same kind of title, maybe just one layer or two. And most of these, like let's say you have a thousand person organization with only three layers. By the way, there's only one really good long-standing example of that. And it's a, it's one that's rife with political sensitivity, but I'll bring it up because Peter Drucker talks about it frequently, and that's the Catholic Church. Um, there are only four layers of management in the Catholic Church, and certainly the Catholic Church has many, many millions of people in it. But most really, really flat and wide structures are doomed to failure. But the problem is for daily consumption for all of us who are professionals and are trying to learn about how to do our jobs better is that we only hear about new, creative, flat, and wide companies that we don't think managers are all that great. 
when they are going that way. When Zappos does that, or when Morningstar does that, or when Google says we're managerless, which by the way, has then been proven just absolutely stupidly wrong. I should know I was there when some of it occurred, when they did their Project Oxygen and discovered, no, actually we need managers and we have data to chose what kind of things good managers do. By the way, those things, in case you're wondering, folks, if you're wondering what Google thinks about management, you can pretty much just think of the manager tools trinity, one-on-ones, feedback, coaching, delegation. It's funny how that thing works that way. But anyway, so journalists almost always cover the new structure. Look at this. We're going to go away from managers. Everybody hates managers. Dilbert, the pointy-haired boss and that kind of stuff. But they don't cover the failure. And so people think, oh, more and more companies are becoming flat, and clearly that's working. But they didn't hear that those flat companies quietly went about becoming vertical again, or quietly went out of business. And when I say quietly, I mean, nobody covered it because you know what? It wasn't cool. It wasn't sexy. Yeah. So you stick around long enough, you'll, you'll see all the craziness that happens over the course of 50 years, right? Yes, exactly. Now, so when it comes to structure, there are a couple of underlying principles that demand we keep our new organization as small as we possibly can. Okay. The first one of those is the work versus headcount dilemma. This is one of my very favorite dilemmas. I have been trying to get friends of mine who are in the management science and research world to cover it, and they just won't because it's not cool. Basically, the idea is this. When we're setting up an org, we're trying to figure out how many people we need, right? We can't have an infinite number of people. We can't probably just have one. And we hope that we get it right, the right amount of people for the right amount of work, which at this point, we're basically estimating the amount of work that people are going to do. But let's ask ourselves a pretty straightforward questions. Have we ever been in an organization that has exactly the right amount of people for the work that has to be done? Nope. Right? (laughs) Nope. Yeah. No, we just know that. It's, It's laughable in big companies. Everyone knows that. We hire a bunch of people and then we lay them off. And when we lay them off, there's no clarity about what all of a sudden the rest of us are not supposed to be doing. In fact, boss is like, no, no, we need to keep doing everything. You know, we, we started with a group of 10. I'm going to oversimplify this. We now are at 20. Okay. There's been a bunch more work added and now we're going back to 10, but you all still have to do the same amount of work. And people wonder why they have retention problems when they have layoffs. Well, it's not just because people feel like, wow, I, I don't trust you guys anymore. You were supposed to be responsible for keeping us sharp and for making good decisions. And clearly, every let's admit it, every layoff in any size company is an admission of massive failure on the part of leadership. Leadership is the one that's supposed to be careful about those kind of things. And it's very clear if we hired too many people and now we have to lay them off, irrespective of what the economy does, folks, that's irrelevant. Okay. If you're an executive, you're supposed to not know, but you're supposed to be able to make estimates of the next two, three, five years. That's why I tell managers all the time, you're only thinking about this month. You're going to walk into the, the jaws of death. It's not the jaws of life because you're going to ask to be make decisions about three years from now. And you literally have never thought about something three years in the future, other than maybe for your kid's college for a few people. So that whole hire and then lay off and then leave people with all the work is just incredibly dumb. In fact, I think Joseph Schumpeter's famous line about all all acts of creation are acts of destruction. And so there's a phrase in management science called creative destruction, where we say, yeah, we're not going to do that anymore. 
And unfortunately, a lot of lower level managers, senior managers, directors do not feel uh, that they can do that without enormous risk. And directors and junior executives have to start telling them, no, it's okay. If you need help, if you need air cover, I will help you with it. Why don't you come up with what you're not going to do and I'll figure out the political ramifications of it. And those conversations just don't happen. So maybe we could say there's sort of an exception for a one-person company, right? Okay, there's not that much work. We have too many people. We're barely, we don't know if we're going to be profitable. Other than that, it's safe to say it's just a question of choice versus structure is really what it boils down to. Are we going to have more people than the work or are we going to have more work than the people? Because we know we can't get it exactly right. If we've never seen it, if we've never seen that perfect balance, that things are just so, what makes us think we could create it in an organization that we haven't even staffed yet? And we haven't even figured out the interactions of all those people. Right. Because the interactions, the communication is actually the glue that holds the organization together. It's certainly not the org chart that holds the organization together. And so all of us essentially know as we're staffing and standing up an organization that we're not going to be exactly right. Close, maybe, you know, if we're smart, but not not perfect. This seems to make uh, the decision really, really hard. Yeah. Well, it simplifies it enormously. We're not shooting at a very, very tiny target that no one can define. We're simply saying if we can't be perfect, do we want to miss high or low? You know, I remember reading years ago. I've talked to you about this before, Mike, that uh, really genius people, they don't know the answers, the questions. They know the right questions. And so the question is not what's the, what's the exact right number, but rather, do we want to miss high or do we want to miss low? Would we rather have a few too many people for the workload, we predict, or would we rather have not quite enough people? And what's interesting in organizational theory, there is a right answer for this dilemma. And the logic of it has mattered. So we're going to take you through it so that when you stand up an org and you have to justify the org to someone, you can strengthen your argument, your logic, your decision tree that you went through when you're asking for $15 million in salary budget or whatever it is, you can make your case and make it intelligently rather than just saying, essentially, this is a guess, right? And the way to address this particular question is to focus on the negatives. In other words, you've got a choice about being too high or too low. What are the negatives of both of those decisions? And then avoid the one with the worst of the two negatives, right? As, as Jack Aubrey would say, the lesser of two weevils. It's a very different approach. So most organizations try to choose the one with the most positives. Well, yeah. And, and here's the thing. Many times the most positives makes total sense except that it also comes with the most negatives. And that's what people, I don't, you know, yeah, there's seven positives, but there's 13 negatives. And three of these 13 negatives are really bad for the kind of people we want in this role. Sounds like interviewing, making hiring yeah. choices, right? The That two-by-two two matrix. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, false positives and false negatives. Yeah, so what happened was companies would do that. They would focus on the positives, but they realized the negatives associated with the positives which if you're looking for positives, you forget to line out the negatives. The negatives are killing them. And so they chose the, the lefer, lesser of two evils, what I call the Jack Aubrey approach. So let's talk about that. 
what are the negatives of having not enough people, right? So clearly, one thing is going to be stress. Yeah, it's going to be work. hard work. Yeah, yeah. And some of the work is not going to get done. Okay, what are the negatives of having too many people? Politics, infighting, waste, inefficiency, unsustainability, budget pressure, and then the chief gets her head chopped off because you spent too much money. Uh, we gave you the money and you didn't even achieve what we wanted you to achieve, but now you're blowing your budget. And most of us realize pretty quickly the problem is the real danger is having too many people versus not enough people. And frankly, it ought to be a reminder. Most large organizations don't have enough people. There are places where they have too many. And a good example of too many is academia and the government who score incredibly poorly on productivity compared to corporate organizations. And this is where we get into the discussion about profitability. Well, that's because companies only want to achieve profit. No, that's not so. Companies do not want to achieve profit. They want to achieve satisfied customers. And if they do so, they will be able to use the measure of profit to determine how well they're doing. And profit helps strengthen their thinking about whether or not they can afford another person. It might be nice to have another person, but not at the expense of draining our future cash because we need cash today to invest in tomorrow to grow. And that cash has to be profit. It's much worse to have not enough work to go around. Now, there's going to be politics in all organizations. I, we've said this before. We have a whole series about politics. One of the things we've said many times is if you want, an or, if you want a job without politics, die because that's where you'll find it. But the politics associated with too many people are much worse than the politics of too few people. Because frankly, people working in an organization with too few people don't have time to engage in the kind of politics that those organizations who have too many people do. In organizations that have too many people, people start getting promoted based on their political ability, as opposed to their organizational or sustainable or results and retention abilities. And I mentioned government and academia. They've been like this for 50 years. They've always had too many people. And it only gets worse because there tend not to be layoffs there for all kinds of reasons, some good, some bad. I mean, most people would say, oh, no. I mean, I don't know anybody who would say the government or academia is more effective. Mike, am I missing something there? Is uh, I, don't, I don't think so. Nobody that I know of. Yeah. Okay, good. All right, so. That's an oversimplification, but folks, I promise you, your fundamental choice when it comes to staffing your organization relative to smallness is you must choose less people than you think the amount of people is needed to get the work done, okay? In the work versus headcount dilemma, work always wins, always more work than headcount. And look, don't wish for it not to be that way. Both choices have problems, but too much headcount has intractable problems and really bad ones for you, for, as we'll discuss, okay? The second principle is another kind of simple one and an obvious one. Organizations want to grow. And that's a little confusing because an organization as an entity is full of people. The people want something, but the people don't exist as an entity and and the entity itself is a legal fiction, but it's an important legal fiction. So does it really want to grow? Well, let's look at the history of organizations. Other than the ones that fail, all the others 
want to grow, they grow. The natural progression for successful organizations is they want to add people. They add people. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Organizations don't actually want anything, but we can infer this desire from the entirety of human organizational history. Over time, because we humans are bad at abandoning obsolete work, going back to Schumpeter and creative destruction, and we're good at creating new work, some of which is designed to help us rather than the entire organization, we need ever more hands at the wheel to accomplish that increasing workload. Yeah, it's kind of like organizational entropy. Yes, it is. But perfect. That's what I should have called this. Rule. Organizational entropy. Okay. Yeah. And look, if we start out with too many employees, with all the dangerous politics, and then we still want to grow because we're humans. And I've said this before. I think it's fascinating that all kinds of science fiction movies always describe humans as a virus. We're always a virus. We're always spreading and colonizing and trying to do more and so on. And at some point, after thousands of years of humankind, there are some things we know. In fact, one of my favorite sociologists whose name's escaped me, I know the last name is Wilson. I mean, Wilson says, there's no evidence that humankind has ever changed in the last thousand years, let alone 10,000 years. We don't. And so when people say to me, oh, technology changes everything. No, it really doesn't. Um, not saying... We haven't been changed, but the fundamental nature of humanity, no. Humankind, no. So, with those two things in mind, we have to remain as small as we possibly can because we must avoid at all costs the dangers of being too big and our personnel growth outstripping our workload. Now, there's one more thing that matters here that will help you keep your org smaller than you might like it to be, and that's your budget. Because your budget is not going to be whatever the heck you want it to be. It'll always be smaller than you want. And when you're an originator as opposed to an operator, you're going to make that operator's budget smaller than he or she wants. That's because you will have stood up organizations before and you understand rule number two, which is whatever you do, don't have more people than you have work. Because the organization is going to want to grow. Okay. Yeah. Don't be too generous with yourself. If you're both the originator and the operator also, when you get to do it, when you decide it and you're the one that's going to run it, be careful. Don't be generous because that'll come back to bite you at budget time. Yeah, well, let's talk about rule number three while we're talking about org charts. One in a box. Yeah, this is a simple rule. And basically, with rare exception, when you create a role and when we think of roles, we think of boxes on an org chart. You create a role that one person can accomplish, right? And the rule's name comes from the boxes on the org chart. It's called one in a box, okay? You've probably seen lots of org charts, and there's always, no, that's not right. Virtually always, there's just one name in every box, and that's a good thing. That's a function of humanity and how we deal with other people and so on. But if you think about it a little bit more conceptually, roles are just roles, they're basically a bunch of responsibilities that are typically related to each other based on a particular skill set, if you will. So I hypothetically, you could have more than one person in a role. We've seen two in a box. We've even seen four in a box. But you folks, you really don't want to do that. It is devilishly hard, according to human history, for two or more humans to share responsibilities within one box. There are exceptions, job sharing, somebody works two days a week, another person works three days a week, something like that. 
it's way harder. And the average human being does not have the communication skills or the collaboration skills to make that work. There are exceptions. And every time there's a famous executive pair, two in a box that is really doing well, everybody touts it. Look at this. People can share jobs. They hesitate to say, by the way, that the role itself pays a million. And each of those people are probably making 400,000. They're not each making a million dollars. That'd be great. I'd like a million dollars for a million dollar job of which I only have to do half of the work, but that's not how these decisions are made. It just turns out poorly. So the solution is really simple here. If you think your role, the role you're designing requires more than one person, make the role smaller. We go back to the smaller thing. Two or more in a box is a mistake when it comes to design. And we have enough evidence that even one in a box can stymie a well-chosen professional. We all know people that are failing in their jobs. Why make the role virtually impossible if one person can't do it? Why would two people trying without great collaboration or communication skills, no offense, but that's the average human being in a large organization, why would we think they can do it? If you do make the role impossibly hard because it's too big, there is a way to tell. If you put two high performers in a role, in a row, and this is a role that you thought made sense, and you put two high performers into that box, into that same role, and they both fail, one after the other, that is not a failure of the box's occupants. That's a role design failure, and there's a name for it in structural world, and it's called a widow maker. Yeah, and every company has one, and sure. if you don't know which one it is, you're making a mistake. Yeah. So that's it. Those are our three foundational rules. It's not really hard. No rules about span and control? No, because these rules take care of that. And we're going to get to span and control in just a minute. And my rule about span and control is who are we talking about? Are we talking about the CEO who has 15 directs or the CEO who has one direct? Which one's right? And the answer is both may be right, both may be wrong. Let's look at the results of the organization, which goes back to rule number one. Okay, it's too it's too bad you said we're gonna see in a minute because I'm gonna stop you right here because we're not gonna. No, are we no. done again? I think we are. I, I don't, uh, and we, we haven't even gotten to the steps yet. Yeah. Oh, sorry, folks. We won't be able to get to the steps, and it won't be a great yeah, breaking exactly. point. Now would be a good time to stop. Sorry, sorry, folks. We'll. Uh, We'll finish this one up next week, I promise you. By the way, folks, my defense for the fact that we have multiple parts is because the dictionary is a long book. You know, <laughs> I, I'm like, dude, hey, could you make them all 22 minutes long? Remember that email we got years ago I from do. the guy? Says, I do. My commute is 22 minutes and some of your podcasts are 35 minutes and my wife gets upset when I sit in the driveway and listen to the podcast. I don't think he realized I got a chuckle out of the fact that our podcasts were good enough about management that you could have had a right driveway and listen to. So yeah, that could be. Yeah, it. that could be. It. Yeah, exactly. All right, folks, we'll uh, we'll finish this one, this one up next time. I hope. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. good luck. Thanks, dude. Enjoyed it. Thanks, partner. We'll see you later. Mm -hmm.